welcome everybody to Blissfully Aware, the show in which three opinionated people discuss what's going on in fandom and nerd news in general. I am Bliss, and as always, I'm joined by my two lovely co-hosts, Kelty and Kendra. Hello. Hello, everyone. So, have y'all seen the Hotel Transylvania movie? No. I saw the first one like 10 years ago or whenever it came out one time. <laughs> you hear they're making a fourth one? Just now. Just this very instant did I learn that. <laughs> I heard people getting big mad on the internet, but I also only really follow adults on the internet, so... I am astounded to find out that this franchise has fans. Yeah, I didn't realize there was a fandom. Fans who are able to access the internet unsupervised. <laughs> Just speechless. And, like, fans that are passionately upset about something happening in this fourth movie. Yeah. What's happening in this fourth movie that's so bad? Drumroll, please. Well, so in the first three movies, there was a character uh, that's just the Invisible Man. And apparently in the fourth movie, Van Helsing shows up with a, like, demonstrification ray. Okay. And in the trailer, you see the Invisible Man become visible. And instead of the hot, sexy person that I guess everybody presumed him to be <laughs> from his floating glasses... Okay. He uh -huh. is a overweight, middle-aged, balding white man. And ginger hair. I saw that. Oh, I see. The, yes. most, the most repulsive of creatures. <laughs> yeah. Not for Fat nothing. Ginger. But if you're gonna if you're gonna be a monster fucker, I mean basic etiquette, you'd fuck gingers. Well, here, right? Here is a photo. See, there he is. Yeah, I'd tap that. I mean, he's not, like, repulsively hideous or anything. No. He's just a guy who's invisible, yeah. I guess. I don't fucking know anything about these movies. <laughs> there have been some petitions made, as if Sony's gonna change it now and make him suddenly hotter. <laughs> oh. Like a full-on, like, a Sonic yeah. the Hedgehog, like, I know, signature right? campaign. Like, oh no, horny people on the internet are mad. And in the case of Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic's original design was unsettling. It was super like, unsettling. I, yeah. I get the, what the like issue was there, is that the design was just flat out bad. But this design isn't bad, it's just not what they want. Yeah. Like, it's a perfectly mm -hmm. acceptable cartoon man design. <laughs> I think people are being rude. <laughs> He's perfectly normal. I don't know what they were hoping for, but again, I don't really care. Again, I saw the first one like 10 years ago and I was like, that's cute, and then forgot about it. I didn't remember he existed at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he's invisible. I, it's just kind of weird to me because, like, who cares? When he goes back to being invisible, you can picture him however you want. Well, obviously, because now they know that they have been fantasizing, perhaps sexually, about an ugly person this whole time. And that's what's gross. Okay, well... Not that it's an invisible man in a child's B-movie. Oh, and he's got David Spade's voice. <gasps> okay, oh, I no. immediately need everybody to leave him alone now, because he's, he's beautiful. <laughs> He's beautiful and he's perfect and you can all just back off. I guess they were all imagining like a Cusco type. That's fair. Cusco like, is very hot. Some like twinky 
South American indigenous boy. But I don't know, man. If you've seen David Spade, uh, he doesn't look like Cusco. He's Holy there. shit, the Hotel Transylvania wiki is long. Oh my god. Short blonde. Man. It goes on and on. There are paragraphs devoted to every film for this one character. Just for this one character? This is just for the Invisible Man. Wow. Jesus fucking Christ. I didn't realize there was that much lore. (laughs) There's a lot of Hotel Transylvania lore. The fucking Game of Thrones wiki isn't this long with some entries. Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah. I I honestly thought that this was the wiki for the whole franchise. (laughs) I have been watching her scroll through. Through it, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense for all four movies of a children's franchise. Like, that makes sense. Mm. But if it's just the one character, it's just for the one character they have. They include the video games quotes. There's video games. Yes, there's a there's a couple video games. Ah, uh, that makes sense. There's though. a Those trivia are... section. Give me some trivia. <laughs> At one point in the story <laughs> development process, Griffin was actually cast as the bartender in the hotel, serving up quips alongside his cocktail concoctions. Oh. oh. Isn't, that, isn't that a fun tidbit of information? Isn't your day a little brighter now for <laughs> well, having mean, learned this? That's pretty cute. I was depressed before, but now I'm great. Mm-hmm. Did the Invisible Man have lines in the previous movies? Like, yes. could you hear there, him? There's a whole section of quotes. Huh. There are 664 pages on the Hotel Transylvania wiki. That's too many pages. That's Jesus Christ. What could they possibly be talking about? <laughs> That's... That sounds like that would take longer to read those pages than it would be to watch all four movies. <laughs> Also, on the topic of Hotel Transylvania and monster fuckability, we are going to do a little discussion about something very near and dear to Kelty's heart, which is monster fucking. Hell yeah. So this is your warning right up front that we will be talking about sexy times and monsters. It's not going to get like explicit capital E, but it's not. if you're not into it, Why would this it? is not going to be the episode for you. Do you guys know what teratrophilia is? I think I'm saying that right. Gonna take a guess and assume it's sexual arousal based on monsters. That is what it is. I finally have a word for it. I am good at deduction. Yay! (laughs) It is uh, classified as a paraphilia. According to Wiki, it's defined as, rather than viewing the condition as a kink, Defenders of teratophilia believe it allows people to see the beauty outside of societal standards. <laughs> that is what we say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Among other things, it has been suggested that monsters can function as an escapist fantasy for some women, since the monster is able to embody masculine attributes without presenting itself as a man, which may embody trauma and terror in extreme cases. So... No, I get that. The, the scariest monster is definitely a cis man. Oh, yeah. Like. Mm-hmm. Never happening. <laughs> I'll fuck the werewolf, but not a cis white man, no. Okay, but that Venom trailer, though. <laughs> I'm very hype about the Venom 2 trailer. I, I watched it a bunch. I looked for all the Easter eggs. I'm very excited. Hell yeah. I'm excited that fucking Woody Harrelson is playing Carnage. Because 
That's who, fantastic. Who arranged that, man? My <laughs> that was a choice. Deepest, most psyche is who arranged that. Thank you. The whole of the Venom Two trailer seemed to just actually be everything I wanted in a Venom Two trailer. It was like, okay, so let's do the let's do the like weird rom com making breakfast thing, and like going around the city being buds. And then Woody Harrelson is Carnage. Which, I mean, we we knew already because of the end of Venom. But also, Venom is just all around a rom-com. Venom is an interesting character. And from what I can tell, based off of this one trailer, my guess would be the inspiration is going to pull from the Maximum Carnage or the Absolute Carnage storylines. And Mulligan in there, I'm wondering if they're going to introduce Toxin. Well, probably, because you always have to be setting up your next franchise installment. Mm -hmm. And, like, pardon me, but the Venom movie wasn't very good. Blasphemy. Like, it's not, like, as a film. (laughs) I think Tom Hardy's performance is very good. And, like, Mm -hmm. the chemistry he has with himself, I guess, because he is (laughs) voicing Venom. As well as playing Eddie. Uh, But, like, the plot and narrative otherwise are just very forgettable. Like, I know know Riz Ahmed was the villain in that movie, because I like Riz Ahmed, but I don't remember anything about his character, or what his character was trying to do, or basically anything that happened in that movie. uh, All I remember about that movie is Tom Hardy in a lobster tank, (laughs) shivering... And sweaty and eating lobster whole. Mm-hmm. Then there's he also made out with yes, Venom. he did. Did yes, sort of. And yeah, no, sort of. <laughs> like there, there. I noticed that there's like a shot of of Ravencroft in the trailer, mm-hmm. which I don't think they've included in in the MCU yet. I don't think so. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're they're going in a more like. Batman direction with it, I guess. Yeah. With Shriek already being locked up there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, yay! I'm excited. So yeah, uh, I guess (laughs) if none of us are going to say the the thesis statement of this episode, we're going to talk about why some people might like monsters as romantic interests in fiction or be attracted to them and where that comes from and how that's changed, I guess, over the course of history. Mm-hmm. Let's go way back into the past from the very start of monster fucking. And what, like, what even is a monster man? Who is the monster and who Isn't is the man? man the real monster when you think about it? <laughs> yes. Bro. <laughs> but we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. First, we're gonna go all the way back to 1756. Beauty and the Beast existed before 1756, but the more or less the version that we know was written in 1756. The trope of Beauty and the Beast is older than that, but I didn't want to go back that far. Okay, yes. So. The original, uh, like, novel form of Beauty and the Beast was written by Gabrielle Suzanne Bardot de Villeneuve. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, yes, it was written uh, by a woman, actually. A lot of people don't know that. And it was written in a young girl's magazine. So it is both written by a woman and the audience, the intended audience, is young girls. 
So it is maybe the earliest, like, monster romance novel for girls. Yes. And it is heavily based on the Greek myth, uh, Cupid and Psyche, including and up to the, uh, <laughs> the dinner where the utensils serve themselves and there is a harp <laughs> playing music with no, with no performer. That is all from the original myth, which shows up in the Disney movie famously. And basically the point of at least Villeneuve's adaptation of this myth was obviously like an allegory for young girls, you know, reaching marriageable age and going off and being some man they they've never met before's wife. Mm-hmm. And the the idea being that like I'm sure this man twice your age might seem like an awful <laughs> monster, but really if you're kind to him, he'll be kind back to you because I guess in a larger scope, monsters in fiction usually plainly, obviously, like this isn't super insightful to say, but they usually are an embodiment of the fears of a of a certain society or culture mm-hmm. in that time and place. So, you know, young girls fear being shipped off for marriage and, and having an evil monstrous husband who's just terrible to them. And so... How monsters are portrayed in fiction changes depending on the culture telling the story and what that culture is afraid of, basically, mm-hmm. because that will get encoded, whether purposefully or non-purposefully, into the monster. Mm-hmm. For sure. And so, yeah, it is the idea around the original myth being there is virtue in finding the good in, I don't know, uh, a, a suboptimal partner, let's right. say. Well, basically in <laughs> sacrificing yourself and your desires, like, you know, for a, a less provincial life, let's say, and and succumbing to the beast, quote-unquote, of arranged marriage. See, yes, I did think that was hot. Less hot. <laughs> But see, but in the end of the original Beauty and the Beast and, you know, the Disney version that everyone's aware of, mm-hmm. like, he is ultimately revealed to be a nice guy, quote yes. unquote, and a human, not a monster. Mm. And it is through her perseverance and devotion that love. that his good attributes are revealed. Yes, there is, like, a transformative element to her love. Yes. Like, and b- because I know this is, like, the big... YouTube film school take. It's not Stockholm Syndrome and it's not settling. Like, no. the Beast is the one who actually changes to be a better person in the Disney version and in the original mm-hmm. version. It's not Belle or Beauty settling. Like, there is an element of him improving yeah. and, like, discovering mm-hmm. one another's good qualities. Also, I should point out this is like a main thing in the mainstream of monster fucking, as as it will, that he will change into a, into a human prince, into a handsome prince, as Bliss said, usually at the end, where it's like the creature is actually a possessed human being who is then transformed by love and and is a handsome prince like all the girls want, but. If you ask a lot of fans of Beauty and the Beast, Prince Adam just doesn't do it for them. But but the Beast did. 
feast over Prince Adam. Any yeah, day. at least in the original Disney movie, the the live action remake that CGI was terrible, just terrible. I forget that that movie exists. To be I honest. only remembered it because I was like researching this, <laughs> and so it came up, and I was like, oh. <laughs> Which I think the fundamental thing, actually, that the remake gets wrong is that the Beast doesn't change. He's no. just rude to her the entire time. He's a naked like, bitch. There's a moment in the original animated film where, like, Bella's staying at the castle and she's, like, bummed. But she's <laughs> basically trying to make the best of things. And so the Beast literally has a moment where he's like, I'm going to do something nice for her. He, like, says that out loud to Lumiere. Mm-hmm. And so... He shows her the huge castle library because he knows that she likes to read. And, like, you know, she has all this time now being a prisoner. (laughs) And so that's, like, an important moment of character growth where they are coming to respect one another. And, like, he is going out of his way to be hospitable toward her. Whereas in the remake, basically what happens is it's a moment of... I think she, I think Emma Watson Bell says like my favorite play is Romeo and Juliet or something, and the Beast like goes like oh that's stupid basically. There's so many better things to read here. Let me show you my huge library. Maybe your dumbass can find something better than simpering girl plays. God, and like that's basically his whole attitude through the whole the whole remake movie. Yeah, like it's to show off his superior taste. In literature, I guess, basically. It's not like, oh, you saved me from wolves, let me repay the favor. It's like, here, maybe your dumbass can educate yourself while you're busy sitting around doing nothing. And so, like, that's what's so wrong, fundamentally, about (laughs) the remake, is that the Beast is just an asshole start to finish. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. I know uh, my queer friends really love Beauty and the Beast and prefer Mm -hmm. Beast to Adam, which, yes. But I think it's interesting how queer people are way more into monster fucking than straight people. Or even just, like, monster empathizing. (laughs) Yeah, well, because, like, as Kendra said earlier, like, monsters in fiction almost always represent cultural anxieties, Right. And like, mm-hmm. queerness is a cultural anxiety. It has been for many years. And where society treats us different. Well, yes, society treats us monstrously. Yeah. We watch something like Beauty and the Beast or King Kong or Creature from the Black Lagoon or The Day the Earth Stood Still. And we're like, I empathize more with the monster than I do with, you know, the violent colonists or yeah. whatever. And this monster that you came into their, their living space. Came and into just... their place and you broke all their <laughs> shit and you, you took them away and tried to shoot at them and why, they were just... <laughs> why? You were, they were why just were living life. Them? They were just out there living their best life. And so, <laughs> yes, when you are a marginalized person in society and you see a film that is about society or modernity finding something it doesn't understand and destroying it, it's easy to empathize with the thing society doesn't understand and attempts to destroy. Yeah. But usually these stories end one of two ways. They end with the monster being destroyed, or the monster transforming into an acceptable member of society like Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. And it's not until, like, lately 
like, yeah, the last 20, 30 years where you find these sorts of Beauty and the Beast stories where the monster is not transformed or killed at the end. Mm -hmm. The monster is just accepted how they are. And the, like, uh, again, this is going to sound really, like, hashtag deep, but the uh, they are, like, inverting these stories by empathizing with the monster and casting the characters that, that are, like, frightened by the monster and attempting to kill it are the monstrous characters in, like, if you are applying this story to, like, an old-school archetype. The monster is now the romantic lead, and the... who would have been the romantic lead originally is now the monster, the Gaston or something, who mm-hmm. who is coming mm-hmm. in and trying to, to slay the monster just for being different and weird, I guess, and being something that he does not understand. Which brings us to my main man, Guillermo del Toro. Ugh, love him. Who, as, as a marginalized member of society, as an immigrant, fucking gets it. He is a director of movies like Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth and Shape of Water. He... He's been interviewed about The Shape of Water many a time because people were finally interested in his opinion now that he's an Oscar winner. He has this one quote, I feel it as an immigrant that has been received by this country, but I still feel there is a sort of demonization of the other very present. I needed to talk about the beauty of the other. Well, in a different interview, he says that The Shape of Water is about celebrating imperfections, celebrating otherness, falling in love with the other. You know, it's not so much about tolerance as it is about love. Which, that part to me stands out very deeply because tolerance and acceptance is not love. And... And I think that's why Shape of Water stands out so much to the queer community, because while we very much resonate with monsters, because that's what society tells us we are, being accepted, while yes is a goal, is not the same as being loved. And so seeing this monster be loved, just as he is an anatomically correct fish man, she... (laughs) She falls for that, she goes and lives with him, and they are happy together forever. And he doesn't even ever learn English, he has no need to, because she's mute anyway, so they communicate through sign language. Yeah, so it very much is meaningful that the fishman, as he is, was not just accepted by society, he wasn't accepted by society, he was accepted by the queer man and the black woman and the disabled woman, but society largely still hated him. Society being Michael Shannon, basically. (laughs) But that didn't matter anymore, because he found love, and that was better than acceptance. Fuck acceptance. Guillermo del Toro's just on a whole other level. I love that man. Guillermo del Toro fucking gets it, man. Well, and it's also a major theme of Hellboy, like Ron Perlman's character... Like, one of his main issues, I guess, in the first <laughs> film is, like, being aware that he, he looks freaky and can't go live and exist in normal normal public with his girlfriend, Selma Blair. And she doesn't care and just loves him anyway. And not, like, loves him anyway, but, like, loves him because. I think there's a huge difference between 
loving the fishman in spite of him being a fishman, and loving the fishman because he is a fishman. There's a scene in The Shape of Water where that's basically what Eliza says. I think her name is Eliza. Like, he understands what it's like to be me, what it's like- the fishman, I mean. Mm-hmm. What it's like <laughs> to be me, what it's like to be unable to speak, what it's like to be ignored, what it's like to be marginalized- and that's why I have a connection with him. Like, it's because of his monstrous nature, not in spite of. It's usually the the moral or the theme of Beauty and the Beast stories is you can love a monster in spite of his drawbacks, mm-hmm. but not because of them. Mm-hmm. But then that's how the queer community was like, well, I'm going to love the monsters because they're monsters. I think a common misconception for younger people, people our age and younger anyway, um, is that this is some sort of new kink, I guess I'll call it, or new fascination, because everybody assumes nothing happened before them. But people have been wanting to fuck monsters for a long-ass time. Yeah, it's in like, it's in like the bare bones of stories of like, myths from every culture like before there was even the written word we had we had stories of like animals like like we were saying like possessed creatures fucking Leda and the swan shit oh god what's that painting dream of the fisherman's wife for the fisherman wife's dream the the og tentacle porn illustration from japan yeah 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 or the fucking minotaur how the minotaur is conceived. Is conceived because this woman wanted to fuck this bull so goddamn bad, she got somebody to build her a wooden cow that she could be fucked in. And I mean, that in the myth, that is a curse. Yes. Like, someone but... has cursed her to fall in love with this sacred white bull so much that she uh, very inventively devises a way to conceive a child with the bull, and that child is the Minotaur. And she's a queen, and the king is so embarrassed and repulsed by his wife's actions that he uh, has the same guy who built the cow build the labyrinth in which to hide his gross half-demon bastard. (laughs) Love finds a way. I've seen so much Minotaur porn. Thank you, Hades fandom. Oh yeah, because of Hades. Yep. And see, there you go. It's <laughs> it lives on. Oh yeah. But um, I also wanted to talk about like basically how monsters, like pretty much every monster, has evolved in recent years to be like a sexy version. Well, I think largely due to Twilight. Mm-hmm. Like, Twilight is not the originator of, like, wanting to fuck paranormal monsters, but it sure is the, like, worldwide cultural domination phenom franchise that that made it, like, normal and acceptable, I guess, to talk about. Yeah. For, like, young girls even to be, like... Which supernatural monster do you want to fuck? I want to fuck Edward. You want to fuck Jacob. Yeah, well. Like, that was a whole thing for, like, ten years. You know, very young girls were like, which ancient symbol of dread and horror do you want to marry? Like, like the Anne Rice vampires are, yes, very sexy and very much, you know, 
passionately, romantically, homoerotically in love with one another. Mm-hmm. But there's no human character that, like, falls for them, usually. Or if there is, they're not, like, a main character. No. They're dinner. Man, I want to be a werewolf. I want to be, like, Michael J. Fox up in here, Teen Wolf. Like, the yeah. 80s Teen Wolf, where he had, like, hairy palms and still looked prepubescent in a way. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And that that was very much like a Spider-Man kind of story where yeah. the monstrosity was a metaphor for puberty. Yes. But then it made him good at basketball. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> well, I mean, post-pubescent boys are generally better at basketball <laughs> than pre-pubescent boys. This is true. But like, yeah, it got to the point where, like... Yes, Twilight made it such a phenom that it got to the point where, like, zombies became a sexy, yes. a sexy monster. Everyone, well, basically, everyone was trying to reproduce Twilight, and so they were just, pick a supernatural movie monster, and we're gonna make that our love interest in our series aimed at, you know, teenage girls. So, you know, you have all of these rip-off Twilight properties, like, you know... Vampire Diaries, and... Warm Bodies. Yes, Warm Bodies was when they tried to do it for zombies. Um, Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf, yeah. (laughs) The Teen Wolf remake definitely fits into that we are capitalizing off of the Twilight fame. Mm -hmm. 1,000%. Yeah. And, yeah, like... I guess it's it's slightly different, but still the, the, like... The idea of, like, a teenager being being attracted to something monstrous is understandable to anyone who's ever been a teenager yeah. because it's a scary, awful, horrible time and your, yep. your body's changing. Society suddenly hates you. You like, you went from being this cute kid with all of your like wants and needs taken care of to having all these problems mm. and, <laughs> and that can feel like a struggle unto being a werewolf. <laughs> Well, and also on the, on the like monster romance side, like just being the human, when you're a teenager, all you want is for somebody to love you because nobody does. It doesn't feel like your parents do. It doesn't feel like your friends do. And it doesn't feel like anybody that you're attracted to has ever even looked at you. It sucks. Everything about it sucks. But then like, the idea of this creature who had been alive for eons looks at you and is like, you're different. You're special. Yes, I've been alive for a hundred years and I've never met someone like you. And, yeah. and like, of course that resonates with teenagers. They're so lonely. It's really terrible being a teenager. You're surrounded by other teenagers and you still feel so ostracized. That, of course, the idea of something that has seen the rise and fall of empires look at you and think something about you is different. And special. And special. Better, even if you have two of them fighting over you. Exactly. God, then you just feel like the luckiest girl at the ball, I imagine. <laughs> like, oh, whoa. 
Yeah, you've got you've got the werewolf and the vampire, you know, angering hundred thousand year old vampire law to be with people or something. Like, I don't know what happens in Twilight. <laughs> Everyone wants a literal piece of me. I'm so special. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, teenagers and everyone, but you know, especially teenagers because they're discovering it for the first time, wants to be wanted. Mm-hmm. Yes, and especially Twilight. The character Bella Swan is so passive, so blank, that largely she serves as a conduit for the reader. Uh Like, she doesn't have a very boldly drawn character because you are just supposed to impose your own character onto her. Uh Whether Stephanie Meyer did that intentionally or not is, you know, debatable, but that's what she ended up writing. The big fight, the big conflict over Team Jacob and Team Edward back in the day, Bella's two potential love interests, was not really about who we thought was a better relationship partner for Bella. It's about who you, the reader, wanted to end up with. Mm -hmm. Who was more geared to your personal tastes in a romantic partner. Because, yeah, that was largely the point of Twilight. (laughs) And that's also why Twilight didn't work on me, because my ideal partner was Charlie. So. (laughs) (laughs) Bella's father, for those unaware. So. That's a whole nother episode. (laughs) Monster daddies. (laughs) Man, he was just so chill. He He was. I feel like Charlie is, like, done the worst by both the movie and the book. Yeah. Because he is just trying so hard to be a good single dad and relate to his daughter. And his daughter, his teenage daughter, is just awful to him (laughs) over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And lets her hang out with this this family of weirdos and their absurdly hot teenage children. (laughs) And go to their fancy mansion overnight. Like, come on, Charlie. You're a police officer. So basically... <laughs> to get back to our point. Yeah. So you see, like, in, like, early, early Hollywood, you have movies like King Kong, and you have movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, where the monster eventually, in the end, must be vanquished, because, you know, modernity, straight, white, hetero men come mm-hmm. in, and, and they vanish the other, the thing that were different than them. And afterwards, more in the, the 70s or 80s, the implications of that become a little more obvious, and you start seeing things that are, yeah, like Twilight, or like like George R. R. Martin's uh, TV show Beauty and the Beast, that yeah. also stars Ron Perlman. Yeah. Where that was like his early, like, Sandor Sansa work. <laughs> <laughs> he really loves Beauty and the Beast storylines. Like, mm-hmm. he, he has one with, like, Jamie and Brienne in Game of yeah. Thrones, and that one is the genders are inverted where the man is the beauty and the woman is the beast, but it is still very much the same sort of story where, yeah, (laughs) maybe put this in the thumbnail, but Ron Perlman's costume makeup effects for that show are something. I know they influenced a whole generation of women and, uh, I guess queer people who, (laughs) who want hairy cat nosed Ron Perlman, Mm. And, like, I've honestly only seen a couple episodes of the show. I don't remember anything about it. But his costume and makeup fucking stuck in my damn head Mm. for my whole life. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, like, he doesn't change. Like, he's always a nice guy, first of all, in that show. And his physical appearance doesn't change. Like, he is is just a monster. Mm -hmm. But he's a nice monster. And 
you see this shift toward empathizing with the monster as we, I guess, you know, culturally start to realize more what the monster represents. Like, in, like, King Kong, and also in The Shape of Water, for that matter, the monster literally comes from, like, a colonized location. Like, Mm -hmm. it's Africa in King Kong, and it's uh, South America in The Shape of Water. And so it literally represents, like, this colonial, like, taking of the resources, taking of human life and, in you know, sentient life and basically dominating it through the colonial apparatus. Mm-hmm. And so it's not hard to see that, like, in a film like King Kong, Kong represents this threat of the other, particularly against, you know, white women and mm-hmm. white femininity that you know, must be killed by modern men. And it's like, it's sad when it happens. Like in King Kong, people are kind of like, oh, what a shame. But he was just too dangerous to to let live, basically. Mm-hmm. But they're not, they're not quite like celebratory, like a Frankenstein type monster. Yeah. But the shift goes to in the shape of water, where in 2017, most of us watch that movie and they're like, and we're like, the fishman was just out living his life. Why would you, why would you put him in a, in a tiny cage in a science facility now? It's Michael Shannon, you know, who would be the hero, I guess, in, in an earlier kind of film, the straight, white, rational man of science, of modernity and reason here to tame, like, the unknown monstrous horrors of the Amazon is just an asshole. Like, there's Mm -hmm. nothing redeeming about him. In fact, his commitment to dominating all the things he doesn't understand is his only characteristic and, like, informed by his white, straight heteronormativity. Because it's not an accident that our other three main characters are all some variation of marginalized. Mm -hmm. They are either gay or of color or women or disabled. Mm-hmm. There is a uh, cut in The Shape of Water where it cuts to Michael Shannon at home, like after a day of, you know, torturing the monster at the research facility. And he is just spread eagle on the bed, jackhammering his wife. Oh, yeah. Like, it is the most unattractive sex scene uh, that I have seen in a while. And like his wife, by the way, who is not enjoying herself. Yeah, like she's it is, not having it is clear in in the shot. I remember being like, "What the fucking point of that? <laughs> what was the point of that? Like me having to watch Michael Shannon like take out his aggression on his poor fifties housewife." <sighs> but it occurs to me, and it occurred to me at the time, that it is to underscore his normativity, to underscore the fact that he is a proper family man. He is married. He has matrimonious marriage bed sex in the missionary position only, thank you very much. (laughs) That is, in fact, what empowers him to treat these other people, to treat both the workers at his facility and the creatures uh, in his facility monstrously. It's his total assuredness that he is in the right and that he is the most rational person in the room, the smartest person in the room, and that the implementations of, of science and reason will eventually, you know, cow the monstrous into conformity. Like, it's it's to underscore the fact that the fishman and the mute woman are having tender, loving, intimate sex where they where they completely romantically are engaged with one another and understand one another and then he, contrast here's michael shannon just 
basically using his poor wife as a sex object. <laughs> and, you know, society thinks that one of those is good and one of those is bad. And it's not the one that the movie thinks is good and the movie thinks is bad. Hence, this very uncomfortable shot of Michael Shannon <laughs> just, just smoking this poor actress. <laughs> I am not a prude. Sex in movies does not bother me. Like, even when it is not meant to be romantic, it doesn't bother me. But that scene was unsettling, like, on purpose, because yes. you are not supposed to watch this and be like, this is a normal, healthy sexual relationship. <laughs> Once, like, the monster was about, you know, finding the best out of your husband, it is now more about sympathizing with peoples who have been subjugated by society. Yeah. Because, you know, these creatures are coming usually from, like, somewhere else. Oh, yeah. And you know what else? What I really appreciated about The Shape of Water was, uh, and while I know that Guillermo del Toro's talked about in interviews that he went to great pains to make the fishman pretty for a fishman <laughs> with, like, the matador silhouette and all that, it's not like he was, like, Twilight pretty. <laughs> no. No. And I liked that because I feel like there is, since Twilight and before Twilight a bit, a sterilization of the monster to make them more acceptable for your average cis straight person to feel attracted towards. So they're not falling in love with the giant hulking hairy beast. And especially like for teenagers. Yeah. Like when you're a teenager, how beautiful you are is usually the, the most important thing. And, like, it's a slightly different form of monstrous, I would guess, than, like, in Twilight and Teen Wolf and stuff, where rather than be monstrous, they're, like, ethereally beautiful. Yeah. Like, they're just, they're they're almost, like, godly in the way that their monstrosity is described. Like, and they are, they are, like, superhuman. Like, not only are you a vampire, you're beautiful and rich and indestructible, and you have a superpower! Like, yeah. you can read minds, or you can run real fast, or you can tell the future, that's what Alice did, or just basically whatever Stephanie Meyer's plot required at the moment. <laughs> Well, like, you're you're saying it, like, sanitizing the monsters reminded me of actually this pretty good bit that Jenny Nicholson mentions when she does her long diatribe of the, the Vampire Diaries. And she talks about how uh, later in the series they make sirens show up, but they're just- Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're just pretty women who swim a lot. They don't look any different. They are just beautiful women who like to swim. And, like, yeah, that's not- <sighs> That's not really... That's not, that's not like a challenge to love. Well, and because they're like, they're basically the footmen of the character who is literally the devil, mm -hmm. mm. they are more representative of like temptation rather than monstrosity. Yeah. Like they are more about like, oh, evil's always sexy because we don't give a fuck, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, well, it is very palatable to straight people. It leaves the queers who grew up wanting to fuck the beast as the beast, you know, wanting. We're all just kind of like, oh, well, you know, you couldn't web their hands a little well, better. because they have taken the monstrous character and made them basically as normative as possible. Exactly. Like, you've just, rather rather than celebrate what makes them different and strange, you are instead reshaping them to just be as, like, normatively attractive as possible, and everything about being a vampire is awesome if you're in Twilight. <laughs> and, like, I will give Twilight 
despite at least perks that, like, it arrives at the conclusion that being a vampire is just objectively better than being a human being, Mm -hmm. and why wouldn't you want to be a vampire? And so everyone just ends up being a vampire. Like, Bella ends up being a vampire, and she's like, this is way better. Why would anyone not want to be a vampire? (laughs) Why do you people bother hiding? Like... Well, I think we have talked about where monster romance has been Mm -hmm. and where it is now. And, like, in the future, and it's already started to happen, basically, like, human robot romance is probably the future of the, like, monstrous romance subgenre. And we definitely already kind of have that with, um, like, Ex Machina, which wasn't really a romance, but it is about basically a robot gaining sentience maybe mm-hmm. like the big the big struggle in the movie and the movie never really resolves it is is she sentient or is she just faking sentience very well mm-hmm. and at the at the end of the day is there a difference like if she passes the turing test does it matter if she is really sentient and conscious or if she's just a machine that's very good at faking it mm-hmm. and like, that's kind of, like, more akin to, like, a Pinocchio sort of story. Like, I want to be a real boy! Yeah. Like, basically, you know, we create something in our own image that is, at least in theory, like, visually indistinguishable from a human person. And, you know, if you interact with it as well, probably pretty indistinguishable from a human person. So, like, if you have a her and you fall in love with your with your Alexa... <laughs> Like, is Scarlett Johansson Alexa, like, a real boy? Like, is she, is she, is she a real consciousness who reciprocates your love truly and sincerely and authentically? Or is it, is it just a machine telling you what it's been programmed to tell you mm-hmm. by another person? And I, I liked her a lot. I like, did too. I did not expect to. Me I loved it. I thought her was great, especially when they, they addressed the problem of a sentient consciousness basically operating too fast for a human mind to compete. Mm-hmm. Like, they reach a point where Scarlett Johansson Alexa, whose character name I don't remember, <laughs> operates basically at the speed of light and never has to sleep or rest or get bored. Like, she's able to basically speed run human relationships Every day. Yes. And so she has simultaneously fallen in love with thousands of people. Yeah. And as basically her consciousness begins to accelerate through time, because roughly what, what they are getting at in the film is that the longer you are alive, the smaller an amount of time, say one day, is compared to the total amount of time you've lived. So when you're 10 years old, Five years is 50% of your life and Mm -hmm. feels like an eternity. But when you're 50 years old, five years is 10% of your life and feels much smaller in comparison. So when you are speedrunning human life, the longer she is basically online, the faster she experiences time because every minute she is alive basically takes her like further and further away from a scope of time that Joaquin Phoenix, her human love interest, is conscious of. Mm -hmm. Basically, she will always be thousands of years ahead of him, just based Mm -hmm. on how she is designed. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's why she leaves him, and basically it ends up with being, like, all of the... All of the AIs on the world... It's vague, but basically they leave to start their own AI society, because... 
humans can't keep up with them. Yeah. So basically, like things like her or even like iRobot, which is pretty cheesy. Um, <laughs> the message is that the way that technology is constructed, our monsters are basically going to surpass us eventually. Mm-hmm. They are going to become better at being human than we are. And very soon, like, if AI progresses in the way we assume it's going to progress, we are going to find ourselves societally in the role of the monster because we are too stupid to know what's good for us and AI is going to set the dominant cultural tone if we let it, basically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because that's, that is now our fear. Is that we will be surpassed. We will be replaced by, by our own machinery, basically. Our own creation will, will leave without us, and we have become God. We have all become Dr. Frankenstein, basically. Except rather than killing the monster, the monster is going to replace us because we have made something superior. Did you notice there's a Mary Shelley Frankenstein quote etched onto the wall in the prison? When um, Carnage is writing the postcard to Eddie. <laughs> I did not, but that's very on the nose. That is very on the nose. Yeah, it is. I would expect it's... nothing less from Venom 2. <laughs> it's the, um, it's the so quote, excited. Thus strangely are our souls constructed, and by slight ligaments are we bound to prosperity and ruin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, man, I'm excited for Venom. I'm excited for everybody, like, embracing monster fucking now. I'm excited that we're all starting to get on board. I hope that there is serious, like, Venom monster makeout. Please and thank you. I mean, they gave us one in the first one. It wouldn't be fair if they just, like, left us behind in the second one. I think that Sony understands where its bread is buttered and is like, we're here for monster fuckers. Like, that's everybody who's going to see Venom 2. We all saw Venom 1, and only the monster fuckers are going to come for, for the <laughs> second one. Nobody is going to want to watch the second one unless it's monster fuckers. So here we are, super excited and ready to go see it in theaters. I'm going to don my mask, and I'm going to go into a theater, and I'm going to watch that movie. I have to say, I, for one, am just appreciative that there's now a whole subgenre of superhero movie where Tom Hardy just does a silly voice for the whole the whole yeah. film. <laughs> he's so great. Because he's those. so good at it. And like, yes, just just have him play a goofy villain with a silly voice in every superhero movie, please. Also, on on the subject of like change and love transforming, I do want to point out that neither Eddie nor Venom change at all through the course of the first movie, nor it seems in the time skip to the second movie. They seem to be getting along better, though. They found that Beauty and the Beast balance. They complement each other. Yes. I don't know. I don't think think Eddie looks like he's doing too good in the trailer. Yeah, well. (laughs) He looks like a man barely clinging on. Well, but that's just Eddie Brock. All I'm saying is that it does not seem to have improved. No. Having Venom in his life, he's now not, like, showering every day and eating a healthy meal (laughs) and, you know, doing affirmations in the mirror. Yeah. He does not look like he's doing so hot. But, counterpoint, Venom loves him anyway. (laughs) Venom loves him even though he's a garbage human who can't take care of himself. And that's... 
That's the true love story. <laughs> the monster fell in love with the man. Yeah. Aww. Basically, yeah. It's it's a reverse shape of water. Yeah. <laughs> we found the most despicable garbage straight man in all the world. And the monster was like, you're beautiful. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I pick you. <gasps> we were going to destroy this planet, but now I like you. <sighs> It's cute. And, I mean, just so everyone is clear, in case no one actually reads Venom comics, which uh, I assume people still read Venom comics, uh, it's it's horny in the comics. <laughs> God, I yeah. loved the 90s. Yeah, the 90s were great. I mean, they were stupid as shit, but they were great. Like, the aesthetic of Venom is very much from that era, where it's like, ah, it's a parasite who takes over your body, and everyone's, he's like, black and has sharp teeth. And now everyone's just sort of decided that Venom and Eddie are in love. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, that's the logical extension of the monster. That's the life cycle of any monster character. Eventually, I guess, you fall in love with it. Yep. Especially if it's like, you know... It lives inside your brain. <laughs> and that's that's actually a beautiful metaphor for self-acceptance and self-love. <laughs> the real monster fucking is falling in love with yourself. Because <laughs> yeah, what's more monstrous than your own inner desires? Yeah. <laughs> what's more monstrous than the things that you are so terrified and embarrassed of that you would not even speak them to a priest on your deathbed, you know? Like, beautiful. <laughs> well, I'm happy for all the monster fuckers out there that it's having its day in the sun. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> did we talk about the thing? I think we talked about the thing. Monsters are hot. It's okay to want to fuck them. Monsters are very hot. Mm-hmm. It's okay to empathize with... with- Things society tells you are bad. Mm-hmm. In fact, it probably says something good about you if you do. Mm-hmm. Oh. Do you guys have a nerdy thing? <laughs> do we? We finished watching the anime. Oh, we watched the dramatical murder anime. <laughs> it's and it's so bad. bad. Like, I'll say this. Like, the game is ridiculous. The game is just absolutely bonkers. But at least, like, things are explained and I care about the characters, yeah. no matter how ridiculous they are. But, like, because it's a visual novel, the game, the main character tells you a lot of things because he's just narrating stuff. Like, it's his own inner monologue. But that's not in the anime. No. And they don't bother to explain a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, oh, you know what this is. So the fact that there's, like, this giant resort encroaching on, like, a tiny podunk working class town and like the government is largely corrupt and in the pocket of this corporation and stuff. None of that's explained. <laughs> no. You just kind of have to infer that. And it gets worse. <laughs> and it gets worse. <laughs> but what about you? So this week I watched both seasons of Ink Master on Netflix which, if you haven't watched Ink Master, is a terrible reality show, which a bunch of yeah. tattoo artists come together and compete to find out who is Ink Master. And the whole time, Dave Navarro, the lead from Red Hot Chili Peppers, is just like, you are not Ink Master. Oh, no. <laughs> like, when they cut them, they're like, Jamie, you do not have what it takes to be Ink Master. Oh, my, oh my lord. And it's like, oh, Dave Navarro, why? 
All the tattoo artists were so fucking catty in the best kind of reality TV show kind of way. But the fact that they were tattooing like actual tattoos on people and fucking them up forever, forever, huge back pieces that are just like, oh, my God, black blobs. And I'm just like, (gasps) why would you volunteer to be a human (laughs) canvas on this show? How can they, po- what sort of release do they have them sign? I have no that idea. that's okay. Maybe they pay for removal. That's, no. No <laughs> TV budget, no reality TV show has the budget for that. That's fair. Anywho, <laughs> if you'd like to find us online, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Blissfully Show. I post links to our YouTube there. If you're watching us on YouTube, hello. Uh, you know. Do the YouTube stuff. Like, comment, subscribe. Appreciate it. And if you have any suggestions for things you'd like to see covered on the show, leave them in the comments or our DMs are open on Twitter and Instagram. And until next time, bye! Bye! Yeah, goodbye everyone! Yeah, that that Lady Demetriscu, big. She big. Big lady. She big and she pretty and she turns into a monster, which is what's best.